Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast. This is episode number 213. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We say this every week, but uh, we might mean it more than ever this week. Two terrific guests for you on the podcast. Coming up a little bit later on, a guy who's been making music with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band since the mid-1960s. We're talking about guitarist and singer Jeff Hanna. They have had so many great moments throughout their remarkable career in the music business, from Mr. Bojangles to Will the Circle Be Unbroken. Uh, Hits with people like Linda Rodstadt, Nicolette Larson, in the 70s, a run of country smashes in the 80s. And better than ever these days with a brand new album called Dirt Does Dylan. We'll talk to Jeff Hanna about the making of the album and their long career coming up in the second half of the podcast this week. But up first, uh, well, one of those that uh, certainly excited us once we knew it was going to happen because both Carrie and I are huge fans of Kids in the Hall. We were so excited to have the new season of episodes of the documentary comedy punks and and to now really have access on amazon prime to all the kids work through the years and it's a it's a treasure trove of awesomeness for a comedy troupe that hit especially your generation carrie and you've talked about this before you were you were too young for monty python in its, in its original airing and the the glory days of of the first saturday night live but the kids in the hall that's your wheelhouse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And both of those, Python and the SNL, I, I appreciated and I watched a lot and I was a huge fan. But for the kids, that was comedy by my generation, for my generation. You know, I, I was within three or four years of age of most of the kids in the hall. I mean, I, they, they, they were speaking, felt like in many ways they were speaking directly to me. And, uh, and the comedy was just so unlike anything else being done at the time. Well, we had a chance to talk with Dave Foley of the Kids in the Hall a couple of years ago, right before they began working on the brand new season. But now uh, that season is out, and we had a chance to catch up with Bruce McCullough. Now, we do talk a little bit about uh, Bruce's one-man show that just wrapped up uh, playing at the Soho Playhouse in New York, Tales of Bravery and Stupidity. But, but Bruce takes that show on the road. On a, on a somewhat regular basis through the years. Wouldn't be surprised to see that uh, back in theaters again. But we had a chance to talk uh, Kids in the Hall, live stage show, some of Bruce's non-kids work as well. A really fun time with a talented and a, a great guy, Bruce McCullough, here on Downtown. Hey, Bruce, this is Rich Kimball. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah, so nice to meet you. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm so excited to talk about uh, any number of topics. Let's begin with what's going on uh, this week. Uh, you're putting the wraps on this performance of Tales and Bravery and Stupidity at the Soho Playhouse. How's the run been going so far? Um, it's been kind of magical, which is a word I've never used. Um, it's a really interesting show. It's it's quite comic, and then it gets a bit more, you know, emotional about all the all the stuff that's going on in the world and all all the loneliness that some of us feel. Does this give you a chance doing a one-man show to to relate differently to the audience than you would if you're working with the kids? Oh, without question. I mean, it's the first thing I, you know, I work in improv, but I've been doing one-person shows for, you know, as long as I've been doing that. And there's just something about communing with an audience alone and getting to know each other that's that's kind of special. Well, the show is running through this weekend, Wednesday through Saturday at 7.30, Sunday at 5 p.m. Tickets, if you can get them, are now available at Soho Playhouse. Kids in the Hall, the new season, season six. My word, are you guys stunned by the response to the audience, or did you expect this? Well, no, you never expect to succeed. That's a way to set yourself up, for, you know, for sadness and, and failure and being drunk in the bathtub. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, no... We've we've succeeded, but not, you know. It's sometimes when we've done our show, our cult grew while we're away. If you know what I mean, and mm. come back and people go, "Oh, we really like you." But this was a time where, oh my God, we're all getting embraced. We're getting rewarded for something, or or perhaps just still being around. 
Now, you've done so many things in your career as a writer, a comedian, a director, a musician. You've had success with a whole lot of different things. But what is it about the magic of the five of you coming together? Well, it is odd. You know, there's a documentary on Amazon now about us. It's like we're just, it's kind of a five-headed marriage. I know a thruple is three. I don't know what a five is. Um, I, I do think that we just speak a certain comic language and we, we kind of found each other and we didn't know it for a while. And what's great about, you know, having the benefit of time is that we've grown to realize that we're best in many ways when we're all five of us together. Uh, the documentary is great. Uh, loved comedy punks. And, and I thought, and there are some laugh out loud moments, but I thought an incredibly poignant moment is when you talk about uh, during during the, the illness that Scott was dealing with of how you chose to comfort him. Yeah, no, and it, uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew he was tender and he was laying down in a futon and I told him that he was not going to die, that Mark was going to die because a sommelier would kill him. And <laughs> one, you know, one of Dave's ex-wives would kill him and Kevin would you know, his face would explode from his takes. And, of course, I'm a work pig, so I die of a heart attack. But Scott, of course, would live the longest life of all of us. And that seemed to turn the corner for him. We're talking with Bruce McCullough here on Downtown. Now, you're a lover, and you talk about it in the documentary. You're a lover of punk rock. Uh, we, we talk in comedy about the beats as well. Is there a similarity between the music that you love and the way you write and plan a sketch? <clears throat> I think so. You know, it's interesting. My composer, Craig Northey, who did, you know, Death Comes to Town, uh, Brain Candy, and does this series, he said, well, your stuff always moves at 140 beats per minute. It's like, that's the Ramones. He said, yeah, more or less. Um, so there is something about how I think, I mean, you can pause sometimes, of course, but uh, I do like, there's a certain beat per minute that, and I move pretty fast in the world too, you know, um, that I think is about my internal energy, my love of a certain kind of music, or maybe it's just my impatience. But that's that's what I find myself uh, moving toward. The best comedy, I think, is, is comedy that doesn't punch down, and that's always been a hallmark of uh, you and the kids, that you not only spoke to, but for some of the outcasts in society. Well, yeah, and, and again, the benefit of the time, you know, at the time we sort of, started on TV during the, uh, you know, AIDS-ravaged 80s, which Scott was losing friends left and right, and it's like, if we could bond together, you know, homosexual Scott and heterosexual Bruce kissing on the lips and, and talk about the things that were important and be really open, um, it, it was really helpful. And then again, you know, when I do something, when I, I was at, at a show or something and someone will go, you know, or First Nations person will say, I, I was on, I was on the reservation. You're, you're the only show I got. And I'm a, I'm a two spirit and I, I'm, I feel okay to be queer because of you guys like that. So sweet. So yeah, no, we've always just thought, you know, business was stupid. <laughs> there was a bunch of squares and then there was us and everyone who were like us, which is luckily a fair amount of people. The new episodes are so good. Now, I, I did want to note that for the most part, you kept your clothes on in these new episodes. Was that an artistic choice? Well, it's one I want to remain in my family. Um, <laughs> I have two, two teenage children. And if I think if Daddy showed his stem and berries, uh, I may not be able to go back home. And, yeah, no, Kevin and Dave, obviously it's part of the scene. And we actually had to fight because Amazon said, well, we should pixelate them. It's like, no, it's not a not a joke if we pixelate them. Um, and I think you see Kevin's bum again. And why is it that the people who should be the last to take off their clothes are the first to take <laughs> off their clothes? I, I can see that why you fought to not have that pixelation because the first time I was watching that scene, it was I was waiting for the cover-up or the cutaway or something. And the fact that it just never happened just made it so much funnier. Yeah, and it's, you know, <clears throat> I do like those things when you go, I can't believe they're actually doing it. And mm -hmm. then with that scene, we really play it out, and I make them jump up and down for the, for the uh, <laughs> listeners who don't know. They're, they're naked. Their, their plan after they rob a bank is to take off their clothes because they won't be looking for two guys who are naked because the guys who robbed the bank had clothes. 
And so, yeah, we just play it out. It's almost like a vaudeville scene from the 50s or something, but obviously with a modern twist. Uh, I love your musical number in episode eight. Uh, I'm not crazy. I just lost my glasses. Yeah, thank you. It's funny. That is something I've been trying to crack for a long time. I'd always have a little um, recipe card up on my, my board. Go, I'm not crazy. I just lost my glasses. And people say, what is that? Tell me about that. I say, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. And then I finally realized it was a really weird, silly kind of modern dance. Um, and, you know, almost with like New York feelies type music or something. And, uh, yeah, it's been, that was, that's probably one of my favorite things in the, in the series. Is that a fairly typical way for you to work where your ideas go up and they, they may sit there for months or, or longer until you, until it clicks what it is or what it needs to be? Yeah, you, you know, there'll be a few, like some you can write so fast, you know, as fast as the scene actually ends up being. Um, and others, you know there's a good idea there. Like Kevin and I have an idea of the, a guy's been having a heart attack for two years. It's coming, but it's not there yet. And we just can't figure it out. But we'll figure it out if we do another season. But, yeah, ever so often I just go, I know there's something there. I don't, I don't quite have it yet. And you wait for it to land on you. It's, as always the case, too, with kids in the hall, the humor is great. It's amazing. But then there are those very subtle moments where something gets you. And there's not, I don't want to say it's a throwaway line because it's not. But uh, in the sketch where you're racing the recliner and uh, and you end up losing that race, just that little line, I miss my wife. Right. And I know, and I improvise that. And it, oh. it's so interesting for the listeners. I, there's a weird sketch where I'm a guy who just drives his easy boy down the road at 30 miles an hour and races a guy with a big car that creams him, which is Mark. Yeah, I didn't know. It's like the director said, I didn't know this was going to be so sad at the end. And I said, I didn't know either. I was just, I was in into it. I got into character. I I, and I didn't quite know where I was going, but I, it was nice that at the end I lost, and it was, it was paid off. And then a guy we didn't know anything about, we, now we know something about him. Well, yeah, we talked to Dave right before you guys started shooting or b- began to shoot the new season. Of course, then COVID hit and things got crazy. How difficult was it to navigate all of those COVID <laughs> protocols while you were shooting? Well, it's difficult. You know, I have not I have another show called Tall Boys, which is a, mm. a great BIPOC sketch show on Fuse. Um, and so I had, I had gone through that with them for a season. Um, but it's never easy. You know, I mean, but luckily for us, we got to write together for about three or four weeks because we hadn't been in the same room that much in, you know, years and years and years. And so we started well. We started hot and then we had ideas and we created friendships or, you know, rekindled our friendships or our creative friendships. And then when you go to shoot, it's kind of weird, but then, then it's us. We take off our masks and then we're just in this little bubble and we perform. So it's in a way it's closer. Um, but you're more like an astronaut in space delivering than you are to mm. someone, you know, having a lot of fun out in the world. Well, and in comedy, especially, <laughs> I have to think that's, that's an incredible challenge. Even if it's just rehearsing with a mask on, it's gotta be tough. Oh yeah, like like doing our dance number that you just mentioned with with, with our masks on. It's like, oh. um, but yeah, I mean, and maybe the the hardship is part of it, right? And it comes, mm-hmm. you have to work hard. Like co- comedy is sometimes easy, but sometimes it's not at all, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that that's part of it. I loved in the documentary learning some of the backstory of how you all came together. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, the role the loose moose played in getting you and Mark together? Well, yeah, no, it was amazing. Mark and I met in Calgary at this thing called theater sports, which is like competitive improv. Mm. And I met him, and then for some reason they let us do our scenes after the show was on and then asked people to stay, and then people started staying or coming just for our stuff. And then the, and so we had a show there for about a year and a half, and the wonderful thing is when we left for Toronto, they had saved up all the money we ever made from our ticket sales of our shows, which they didn't give to the improvisers for some reason, and gifted it to us. So we had $4,000 know, in the 80s to go to Toronto. 
And then the, the shows at the Rivoli are just epic. And as you guys point out in the in the documentary, there weren't always big crowds there, but what an opportunity to learn your craft in front of an audience and learn about each other. Yeah, well, and but when you're young and impatient, you don't know you're learning your craft. <laughs> you just think you're failing, and only when you're you know older you go, oh yeah, that was probably good for me to, to bomb a few times to to have six people there. And then I I do I do think the ten thousand hours thing. Yeah, we've been on on the stage together now ten ten thousand hours for sure, or you know, filming or whatever. So yeah, I think it was great to have the hardest thing. It's what Lauren Michael says: is artists need a space. They need a home. Um, I had one with Loose Moose. I obviously had one with Lauren, and I had one with the Rivley. So it's amazing. Speaking, and the big one, of course, is the kids in the hall. Speaking of Lauren Michaels, did, you really hung up on the SNL people when they called. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I define myself as a punk and Hey, if we don't have tickets come next year, you know, I didn't know that SNL was something we wanted to do anyway. Um, and yeah, but that was, that was the start of me realizing my punk ethic wasn't maybe good in every situation in my life. <laughs> uh, Lewis Black is a great friend of our show and it uh, sounds like he was a, a big supporter and a help to you guys when you were in New York. <clears throat> Yeah, no, he, he emceed, you know, when we would be there, he'd be there, he'd, you know, put us on. And then if we didn't do so well, he'd pick up the pieces and say, come on, you people, you're not seeing it or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. He was a great help when we were there. What went wrong when you uh, and Mark got hired as writers at, at SNL? Was just not a good fit for you? No, I think it's, you know, I was so used to, it's a hard machine to, to fit into. Like the kids mm. in the hall were always five people who are trying to write enough funny stuff to fill a show. And Saturday Night Live is too many people going for the same stage time and the same thing. And I have a kind of weird, I, I have a weird brain. My ideas are weird. They're not, you know, I can't describe them sometimes. Like, you know, an idea that comes to mind is, you know, when I did the kids in the hall, I said, I'm, I'm going to just do a dance to a drum machine and then it's going to stop and I'm going to say weird things. And they said, yeah, that sounds good. Um, you don't do that at Saturday Night Live. You have to explain what it is and why it is. And so I think I, it was an okay fit, but I think we just got weirder and weirder. And, but more importantly, emotionally, I don't think I felt like I was with my family anymore. And I thought, because I thought when I went to SNL, there'd be people that would be really as funny, if not funnier, or more brilliant than my other four guys. But it turned out maybe they were more brilliant in the way I couldn't see, but they weren't like what my family was. All right, here's a question for you, Bruce. Of all the kids, who plays the most attractive female characters? Um, well, they say legendarily Dave. Um, I think Mark in the early days is pretty good. I don't mind my Tammy. You know, you can take her home. Um, I guess, um, so the, I guess the least attractive is Scott. Sorry, Scott. Don't, he's not listening. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, but, but what was great, too, when you guys were doing that, that it was not like everything else. It wasn't done to make fun. It was just a way to play different characters and, and empower them and honor them. Well, without question, because we were playing our moms, our girlfriends, you know, or girls we wanted to go out with or girls we disappointed or, or women in the office. And, you know, for us, for us, we've never been in drag. We're playing people who mm. happen to be women and what should Kathy wear and what should, you know, whoever wear. And so we came from the inside out. So that's why, and even when we started the show and, and journalists would say, tell me about the drag. It's like, what? I didn't, it was, it felt like a non-issue to us, but that's what happens when you work in a vacuum, you know. There were so many great sketches through the years, but, but here, Carrie and I both are unabashed fans of love and sausages. Well, you poor misguided fools. <laughs> um, that, that was one of mine when I was going through a European film phase on my off days. And I think it almost tore the troupe apart. Like, I think it ended up being eight minutes long, but I really think the first cut was like 16 minutes long, you know, in a 22 minute show. I don't know if that works, but thank you. And what I love about that is there's not one joke in there. Mm, not one. No, but, but still to this day, and, and it happened the first time we watched it, um, you know, back, back in the late eighties, early nineties, all I have to do to make my wife laugh 
is look at her and use the sausages line, you know, you sausage right. and, and she laughs and it is just calling back the memory of that, of that sketch, that, that film. It yeah, just well, makes her laugh every time, even without, as you said, it having jokes in it. Well, I, I do think there's, there's a real value sometimes, especially, you know, I've worked in the American system or machine or whatever. Sometimes there's a real value in stuff that, you like it and you don't know why you don't know what it means. Mm. I mean, it's, it's kind of what's happening on TikTok now. You know, my son's 15 and a half and he shows me this weird stuff. You know, some guy's dressed with a blue face and he comes up to the camera and just burps. And then he breaks. We all, we all laugh at the same time. It's like, why is that fun? And so I do, I do like sometimes just stretching people's brains. <laughs> it's like, mm. ah, I don't know. We, we find it funny. <laughs> Uh, you directed what I think is an underappreciated film, A Superstar, with Molly Shannon. I, I think it's a, a wonderful film. And, man, is she having a moment right now with the, her success in White Lotus, and I love that for you. Uh, what was the experience like doing that movie? Uh, oh, my God. I, it was amazing. I mean, we both, I think we were both scared, and we sort of clung to each other. And then Will Ferrell would keep saying, why are you guys taking this so seriously? Um <laughs> And I say, go put on a, a girdle. You got a dance scene in a minute. <laughs> um, no, she she was so sweet and so vulnerable. Um, and she's not just sweet; she's also complicated, and obviously has a has a sa- savage underbelly due to you know. If you read her biography, which I am, it's right near my bed in my hotel room. Um, you know, I think we're kindred spirits. It's almost like you know, there's a lot of as we say with the Kissing Hall, we're kind of broken toys who came together to to heal. I, I kind of felt that kinship or feel that kinship with Molly. I talked to Dave about this when he was on one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years or so doesn't get enough love. I think is Dick. And you were so great as Carl Bernstein with Will Ferrell uh, as Bob Woodward. I think that's just a brilliant satire. It's a really good satire. And I, I think, you know, Lauren was always worried about brain candy because it's kind of satire. He says, America doesn't really like satire. It's cold. Um, but I, I thought Dick hit it really well, and there were so many, you know, Tim Dunst and, you know, so many people in that in that movie. They just loaded it up with the people who turned out to be even cooler later on, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I thought it was totally great. Uh, what about directing? Is there more of that in your future? Um, well, you know, I've been doing a little bit. I did I did one of the seasons of Shit and Shit's Creek, and I do... I, I'm very close with the Trailer Park Boys, and I've done a couple seasons of their stuff. And whenever they pick up the phone, even if it's crappy dough, I, I hop on a plane to Halifax. Um, you know, I directed uh, all three seasons of Tall Boys, which is mm. which is out now. And so I I, lo- I love directing. You know, I didn't I didn't love it at, at some point in my career, but then I started doing it again, and I was like, oh, I know how to do this. This is this actually can be fun and not feel the stress of it, which I think I did when I was young, you know? But um, I love directing. We're talking with Bruce McCullough here on Danto. Well, right in episode one of the new season, uh, you guys kick off with a, a little shot at, at brain candy, a bit of an inside joke for the longtime fans. Do you guys view brain candy in a different light all these years later? Not Yes and no. I mean, you know, here, if you watch the documentary, if you know anything about us, or even if you watch the film, it was such a dark time for for the troop that I feel like you can feel that in on in the footage in some way. You know, terrible things were happening. Scott lost his brother. There's marriages breaking up. Dave was kind of on the outs with us. We weren't having a great time with not Paramount, but the other people that had financed the movie. And so it just felt like that. And so I think now, you know, we started doing some live readings of it and doing music and, you know, in basically 2000 theaters. Really? You want to see that? And I, it, it made us, I think, appreciate that movie. And also um, the fact that we could kind of revisit our darkest thing and turn it into a, a like a tiny success made it that we could get through anything, you know? And no, it's not a perfect film. There's so many cool moments and characters. And, um, and you know, my wife says everything you touch turns to cult. And I I think that's what I think when I see that film. Well, speaking of cult favorite, uh, Death Comes to Town for me is just a a master 
piece of, of limited series storytelling. I, I absolutely love that. Uh, getting ready for this interview, I went back and rewatched it. And uh, I, I, Shuckton was robbed of the elliptics. <laughs> Come on. Yes. Yeah. Well, we still around my house. I know you use sausages. I still look at my wife and I go, I blame you. Um, but I do, yeah, it was, you know, we, we were coming up with that in the, the, one of the, the second last tour we did. And it was just like, I said, guys, I have a little idea. Will you let me run with it? And, and then we had a meeting and I had like one page, you know, <laughs> a death gets off a small town in off a Greyhound bus in a small town. And it's a murder mystery. And Mark says, well, what's the rest of it? I said, well, that's the fun. <laughs> Let's figure it out. And so, you know, I ended up executive producing that. So the guys were really good to let me kind of take the reins. And then I realized, of course, I was now that I was working for all of them, and I had to be the nicest version of Bruce McCullough, um, which I endeavored to do. But, no, we, we loved that. That was fun. But then, you know, people couldn't find it for a while because, no offense, it was on IFC here in the States, which is not HBO and you know it's great now because it's now it's out on on the part of the Amazon Kids in the Hall offering. Um, but yeah, but after that also we thought, yeah, we like that. But if we're going to do it again, let's go back to sketch. So when you guys got back together to do the new episodes, uh, did it take long to get back into the old rhythm? Is there there's got to be after all these years a shorthand with all of you? Well, you know, an idea is everything. And I remember, because Mark's always the most reluctant to want to do stuff, and we were sort of talking about it, and then I, I was in L.A. at the time, and I, we were having a lunch, and I said, I don't know about the show and that, and so we were sort of talking, and he said, well, I got one idea. And, and he told me an idea, and I thought, okay, he's in. He's doing the show. Because if you got one idea, like you're like gunslingers, you got one bullet, you're gonna, you'll, you'll have more. And so it's all, it can be awkward for a minute, but then it's always kind of the same as it's always been when we're together for a lot of time. Uh, the new season ends with a great cliffhanger sketch. Uh, what Do we know anything yet? Will there be more episodes? Um, yeah, we're just talking about that internally and figuring out, you know, we were laughing. It's like, no, no, this succeeded so well. I'm, maybe we don't have to do it again. Let's be smart for the first time in our long, <laughs> long dumb careers. Um, but we're talking about that right now. Now, you say in the uh, in the documentary you're going to do it until you can't do it anymore. We're counting on you. Yeah, well, you know, whether that's, you know, my my solo show or working with just three of the guys or, like, I, I do feel kind of a, a drive to, you know, because we've lost good people, uh, mm -hmm. that I am a blues musician and I have to keep doing it until I, you know, until I'm in a chair playing my guitar. Um, so, but that doesn't mean we have to do this. We could do something else, so you know, as long as we're um, committed to the idea of it, of doing something, then that's, that's, you know, that's the spirit of it. Well, love everything you guys do together, but also individually. Uh, you guys have uh, great talents. Uh, everybody's got some unique skills, and it doesn't matter what you do, but we love the work that you do uh, as, as members of Kids in the Hall, but also out there on your own as well. It's been a real treat for us to talk with you today, Bruce. Thank you, and you had it's so nice. You you went back and watched my stuff, or even watched my stuff once. So I I, I totally appreciate you. Oh, that's awesome, Bruce. Uh, it's been great talk with you. Love the new season. Wish you well with this uh, final week of the show in New yeah. York, and uh, hope you have packed houses that are blowing kisses your way. No, it's it's going pretty well, but I totally appreciate you you doing something. Else. Thanks so much for talking with us, Bruce. We'll, we'll talk again. All righty, we're not bye stopping. Bye. Man, it was so much fun, Bruce McCullough talking kids in the hall and more with us on downtown the podcast we'll take a little break when we come back jeff Hanna of the nitty-gritty dirt band since its founding in 1954 cross insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in bangor maine into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in new england with the network of offices throughout new england cross insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you your family and your business we are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. They say everything can be replaced. They say every distance is not needed. 
bit of the new album from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Dirt Does Dylan, the band teaming up with the sisters from Larkin Poe. That's a great album of the latest in a long career of terrific music from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. We had a chance to talk about all of it with founding member Jeff Hammond. I've been a fan of uh, of your music for so, so long, and this this new album is just terrific. I, I have to think, too, I, it's, on the one hand, when you're doing Dylan covers, you got a lot to choose from, but it's also a pretty daunting task because there is so much of his music to choose from there. Well, yeah, there is a lot. I mean, he's written hundreds of great songs, and uh, our our kind of uh, agenda with this was was to try to find stuff that a you know for starters they're all good <laughs> it's Dylan right <laughs> so you know you have this embarrassment of riches when it comes to the material but uh but in our case we started with a long list about 80 songs by the time we made it to the studio that was down to like 30 or 40 then we started just sort of running them sitting around in a, in a circle with acoustic guitars and just uh you know playing them singing before we you know went to our little positions in the room to start actually recording and and you know they they the songs kind of found us you know sort of like these these tunes came to us the ones that really suited our band the best so uh that's kind of how we got there with with it you know again some of these tunes go back to the 60s some of them into the 70s you know and it it, it, it wasn't by any design that we ended up uh, really referencing that particular period of Bob Dylan's writing. But, uh, you know, that's, that's where we went with it. Well, we got I, I love the fact that there are some, I think, some unexpected treats on there. Um, country Pie. Man, that was yeah. awesome. And that's a great version of it. Thank you so much. Well, you know, you may or you may know or not know that our band started as a jug band. I did know and, that. Yeah. So... A lot of our fans came along later after Mr. Bojangles became a hit and, and our band was known more as sort of a Southern California country rock outfit. But before that, we played jug band music, which has this sort of ragtime, blues, skiffle band kind of vibe to it. And uh, our keyboard player, Bob Carpenter, suggested that tune. I thought what it, it was brilliant. It was really fun. I should point out that we recorded that song live around one microphone. So it was really... Wow. Really old timey, as they say. <laughs> you guys were what was one of the original names? Was the illegitimate Jug Band? Well, actually, that was my high school band that I had before the Dirt Band. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, my my buddy Bruce Kunkel, who was actually one of the original members in our band, he and I had this. <laughs> we had this Jug Band, but we didn't have a Jug player, so we called it the illegitimate Jug. Band. <laughs> I, I also love that uh, you got uh, Quinn the Eskimo, the mighty Quinn on there, and a, and a terrific version of it too. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. You know, that's a it's a pretty iconic song of Bob's. One that, you know, I mean, the famous version of it, of course, was by Manfred mm -hmm. Mann back in the '60s. But we always loved that song. We would play that at sound check sometimes, or throw it in at the end of a night for an encore or something. But it's got a great. I love the chorus. It's a real joyful kind of a, you know, a vague lyric like Dylan's famous for sometimes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, a lot of fun. And uh, you got some great collaborators too on the times they are a change. And my goodness, what an, an all-star cast. Our friend Roseanne Cash, uh, Jason Isbell, Steve Earle. Did you have to pull some strings to get Matresa Berg on this too? Matresa Berg was the hardest one to get on that. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell them. <laughs> Um, Tracer Berg is, of course, Jeff's wife. So, yeah, but but still may have required some persuasion. Well, you know what didn't require any persuasion? I, I should point this out, by the way. We recorded the track to, for Times Are a Change in uh, right before the country went into lockdown mm. back in March of the uh, second week of March 2020. So when we got in to add the guest vocalists, our band was scattered to the winds. Our keyboard player, Bob, was out in Los Angeles where he lives. Our drummer, harmonica player, Jimmy Fadden, was in Florida. So after Roseanne recorded her verse, uh, Matresa came in and sang harmony with Roseanne. She loves Roseanne and they're friends. But she also played the Bob Dylan-style harp. Matresa is a really good harmonica player. We had to ask Jimmy Fadden's permission, of course, because he's just... He's an iconic harp. 
but he loves Matres and he said, sure thing. You know, she get, she does that really well. Um, yeah, it, it was, those folks are so great. The Warren Treaty, Michael and Tanya Trotter, um, Steve Earle, of course, Jason Isbell. They're such wonderful folks. And, uh, I, what I, I admire them as much as people as for, as I do for their work. I mean, there's, they're brilliant artists, all of them, great writers, great singers, but they're also really great human beings. And that was, that was a serious pleasure getting to sing with them. How did you get together with Larkin Poe? Well, that's, a, um, that's an interesting story. We, uh, the Lovell sisters, uh, Rebecca and Megan Lovell, they, uh, they had a bluegrass band when they were kids with their, with their sister. It was called, it was called the Lovell sisters. And when their older sister retired from the road, they went on as a duo. And I, I believe it's their great grandfather or great, great grandfather was named Larkin Poe. So that's where they got the name. We, we were touring with them back in 2010, I believe. And we struck up this friendship. I mean, they're really, really great. And, uh, they started in bluegrass. Now they're a seriously hard rocking band. I mean, their band is great, but a serious deep rock and roll. Uh, they both, uh, Rebecca plays electric guitar and Megan plays lap steel guitar. Uh, we, we'd stayed in touch all these years and back, uh, I don't know, I guess a few months into lockdown when we started talking about finishing up some of these tunes, uh, my, my co-producer Ray Kennedy, who's a great producer, by the way, does Lucinda Williams and Steve Earle as well. Uh, we started talking about bringing in somebody else to sing on I Shall Be Released. Bob, Bob Carpenter had already done his vocal on it. So uh, I brought up Larkin Poe. I, I thought that would be great to have them on there. We sent them the track. They loved it and came in and just, you know, they were very well prepared, came in and did a wonderful job. And I love what they did on the second verse, Rebecca singing and Megan coming in and harmonizing with her. Then Megan just burned it up on that lap steel guitar as well. They're super cool. I'm a huge fan, huge fan of theirs. We're talking with Jeff Hanna of Nitty Grady Dirt Band. The new album is Dirt Does Dylan. Every cut on this album is stellar, but I, I think my favorite is your interpretation of Girl from the North Country. Oh, thank you, man. I, you know, musically, as a, as a piece of music, that's one of my favorite things we've ever done, honestly. Um, my son, Jamie, sang lead on that, by the way. Jamie started playing in our band. Uh, he and, and our buddy, Ross Holmes, who plays fiddle and mandolin, the two of them came on board in 2018. So this is our first record with those guys. Um, Jamie, uh, we just got in the studio and started playing it. And Ross uh, had this gorgeous mandolin figure worked out. With, Bob Carpenter was playing accordion. And this, it's this really, I mean, I don't know, it's just cinematic to me. The, it's mm. this beautiful, almost Celtic sort of scene that those guys paint musically. Uh, and then Jamie plays that really groovy electric guitar on the outro as well. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for that, though. That's that's one of my all-time favorites. I'm not biased, but, you know. <laughs> Do you I remember, really, uh, you remember the first time you saw Dylan live? Oh, yeah. I was in high school. Um, I grew up in Long Beach, California. And uh, Bob Dylan came and played at a high school that was right across town from where I lived. Me and my uh, my girlfriend and a, and a bunch of our buddies went to see him play. It was somebody sent me a picture of the poster uh, a few months ago, and it was like uh, I think it was three dollars to get in, four bucks at the door. You know, adjusted <laughs> for inflation, of course, right? Uh, and some zeros, but man, ah, that was such a such a huge thing for a 17 year old kid to see this guy that, you know, he was, Bob, he was probably 20 or his early twenties. I'm guessing. I think he's, he's about five years older than I am. And he, uh, six years, I think. Yeah. So he would have been 23, 24, maybe he's, uh, geez, just incredible. And it was great seeing him is right at the tail end of before he went electric. So he came out on the stage with his acoustic guitar, his Gibson guitar and his harmonica rack. And, you know, I remember, I mean, I read, remember really clearly he had a cool suede jacket on and, you know, he was a hip, hip cat. Uh, you know, I, I think that I always felt like he brought this, you know, folk music, the folk music that we got into and in it starting in the early sixties and then, you know, continuing through our lives, uh, 
back then, a lot of our heroes were folks from a generation or two before us. So Dylan happens on the scene and he's like this, you know, he could have been in the Beatles. He, he brought this great sort of youthful uh, sensibility and energy to the whole scene without, and he was very clearly influenced by some of the greats like Woody Guthrie and Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Pete Seeger, folks like that. But man, he was so cool and he still is. Speaking of legends, uh, we're, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, that, that landmark album of yours. You guys were so young at the time. Were you, were you maybe too young to be intimidated by the group of people and legends that you were working with on that project? Yeah, kind of young and dumb, right? I mean, it was, <laughs> uh, we were, I think that we were, a, kind of a little bit in shock that we were in a in a room in a recording studio with folks that we had stared at their album covers, mm. you know, as growing up and just amazed that, you know, Earl Scruggs and Doc Watson and Maybell Carter would want to get in the studio and make a record with us. So, uh, I mean, you know, of course we were intimidated, but I also think we were inspired so much that it raised our game. You know, we got to it was like, better not screw up. Here we are in a room with these <laughs> legends, you know, so, and they were so gracious and, and totally, I mean, their, their sense, sen collective senses of humor was, uh, were, were so, oh man, you know, they, they made it real easy. There was a lot of, a lot of, you know, cutting up and uh, just, they were just wonderful folks. They, they all felt like family to us, you know, uh, you know, lucky us. Ken Burns is a great friend of our show, and uh, he comes on every time he's got a new film. And, and I, I so loved his country music documentary and, and some of the footage from those sessions. It was so powerful. Oh, man, we were so honored to be part of that. Uh, that I, I just thought the whole country music series was incredible. Mm. And uh, uh, my buddy John McEwen and I both got to do a little interview, talking head spot on that. He did a. He really did a great job. He and he and Dayton Duncan. Yeah. I just love both those guys. They're so cool. I'm always always look forward to whatever they may have cooking. And they've always got something cooking. But yeah, they were uh, they were super respectful of the whole scene, and uh, we I, you know, it was it was very humbling to be part of that. Well, you guys have done this so long, and you and Jimmy have been together since what 1966. Bob Carpenter has been with the band since the mid seventies and you guys not just keep going, but you're, you're not just playing the hits. You're out there making new music and constantly reinventing yourselves. And, and I, I think that you were one of the first groups to really cross genres or not even care about genres. Well, you know, when we started, it's funny back in the, you know, back in my day, back in the sixties, <laughs> uh, the radio FM radio was kind of a brand new thing, you know, and it was very non-genre specific. I remember a, there was a favorite, a favorite station of mine of ours in, in LA, I think it was KPFK that, you know, late night FM radio, you could hear flat and scrugs one second and the next album would be a cut from Jimi Hendrix. It was just all over the map. And I always loved that freeform radio, right? We live in a world now that it's uh, we are you know in genres and subgenres and sub subgenres and so things are kind of you know divvied up. I think you know I understand the concept. I get it. If you really like a certain thing, if you're you know whether you're streaming something or trying to find something on the radio dial, it's all you want to kind of go where your tribe is. But there's it's fun I think to have it kind of. It, the, the unexpected, I think, is always a, a, a real pleasure, you know, something new. Um, but, yeah, we've always kind of divided. <laughs> we've always sort of, uh, you know, defied genre categorization, as they say. Sometimes it's worked for us and sometimes not. But I think that, you know, it, it's always my f my favorite artists have always been folks like, you know, the Beatles, for example, from cut to cut on their albums. They all, sometimes sound like a different band. Mm. Um, Bob Dylan's a great example from song to song, from record to record, depending on what era. Um, what, what did, uh, what did Mr. Bojangles do for you guys? Oh man, it changed our lives. I mean, we, uh, that song, again, that song kind of found us. We, uh, 
I, I, I heard a little snippet of it on the radio driving home from a rehearsal back in probably back in the late fall of 1969, we were working on this record called Uncle Charlie and his dog, Teddy. And uh, I didn't hear the whole song, but like, you know, late night FM, they didn't back announce and I had no idea who the artist was. Turned out it was Jerry Jeff Walker, but I walked into the rehearsal the next day and explained, sort of tried to describe the song to the guys. And while uh, one of my buddies, Jimmy Ibbison, who was with us back then said, I know that song. And he had a a scratched up 45 RPM single of Jerry Jeff singing that song in the trunk of his car. So <laughs> we, we put it, we found a record player and stacked a bunch of pennies on the needle. So it would track, we could actually play it, uh, recorded it thinking that, you know, that was the art piece. We figured this is this great four minute song, but it was a waltz. It was about old, a song about an old guy and his dog. And it's like, is that a hit? Probably not, but we just love the song. So of course, what do we know? <laughs> it became the, uh, a huge hit for us. And really, honestly, it was Bojangles that really got us on the road, really on the road. I mean, we had toured some, you know, we had a, a, a top 40 hit with a song called Buy From Me The Rain back in 67, but there was a big gap between Buy From Me The Rain and Bojangles. And by the time we got to that that Uncle Charlie record, we, we were kind of ready. We were kind of ready to get out there and see the world. So we toured all over the States and eventually, you know, Japan, Russia, and all over the world. I was doing country radio when you guys had that the phenomenal string of country hits. My God, Fishing in the Dark and and Dance, Little Gene. I mean, it, it, from my money, two of the best country songs of, of the last 50 years. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, country music was really, really good to us. We, uh, you know, it's a little ironic that, you know, it, as far as like uh, in terms of the style of music we were playing, when we came to Nashville to start making records, we recorded Will the Circle Be Unbroken here in 71, but you know, that was kind of a one-off. Right. We don't, we still been doing most of our recording in Los Angeles or Colorado after that. But when we came down here and started making records in earnest for country music, uh, I think the first of those albums came out in 83. Uh, we were amazed at, you know, the the landscape of country radio had changed to where it felt a lot like that Southern California country rock mm. we were playing back in the early 70s. So we didn't have to really change. <laughs> we didn't have to really change much to fit. I think because of Will the Circle being broken, though, the country music community really accepted us. We were very fortunate in that regard, you know, being able to, you know, open one, close the door to rock and roll and open one to country music. And you'd also had success on the pop charts uh, with a couple of terrific collaborations, working with Nicolette Larson and, of course, with Linda Ronstadt. Oh, those were two of my favorite things we ever did. I, I love I love Linda so much, and I actually got to play in her band for a brief period back in '69. Um, and Nicolette was so great. We loved Nicolette. She was such a sweetheart. Yeah, she, I was on Make a Little Magic with Nicolette. They were back-to-back -back singles. I think for a time, people thought, oh, it's the Dirt Band and guest female artists, you know. Uh, and boy, were they great, both of them. But the, the collaboration that people may not be aware of is that, that you guys were also on another hit record as the Toot Uncommons. Uh, you were uh, <laughs> Steve Martin's backup band when he did King Tut. That's correct, yes. Uh, actually, it was me. And the guys that were our rhythm section at the time, Merle Brigani on drums and Richard Hathaway on electric bass. And we had a studio, our, our manager uh, at the time, Bill McEwen, had this studio in Aspen, Colorado. And Steve lived up there. Steve Martin lived up there sometime. He had a, he had a place there. He's still living in L.A. But uh, he said, would you guys go in the studio one Saturday afternoon and cut a demo? So we went in there thinking it was a demo. And Steve was like, he was like five feet away from me doing that whole wild and crazy guy. Seriously, I mean, performing really the song. So he sang that vocal live and we had such a great time putting that thing together. It was so much, we, you know, we, we cut the track, Steve sang it. Then we did these background vocals with Richard and I and Merle and Steve and a buddy of ours, Brian Savage, that lived up there as well, put the saxophone uh, part on later too. And, and we thought, okay, great demo. So they took the demo to L.A. and 
they uh, they took it to Warner Brothers Records and they said, demo, no, that's the record. That's <laughs> the only gold single that I have hanging in my house be- because I was credited as the arranger on that too, which I appreciated that from Steve, was uh, is, is King Tut. <laughs> that's fantastic. And you guys were also in, people may not know, you had a cameo role in the movie musical Paint Your Wagon. Yes, we did. We that was typecasting. We were. Uh, it was while we were still a jug band. So I mean, I remember I played washboard, and I think Jimmy Fadden played jug. Uh, Johnny on banjo, Les Thompson on mandolin, and our buddy Chris Darrow on fiddle. It was a. Uh, it was you know I was supposed to go. It was the gold rush era, in in California. So we were all these miners, and there was a big a scene where there was a song called "Hand Me Hand Me Down That Can of Beans." <laughs> <laughs> and we're dancing around the mud. I remember they just dumped water on the set for two days. So it was super nasty. You know? <laughs> and we were outside freezing cold, shot at it. Like, I think we started at eight o'clock at night and shot till about three in the morning, but it was Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood and the great Gene Seberg as well. It was fun, man. We'd never done a movie before <laughs> or since. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I've been a fan of your work. I, I think, I think the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band ought to be in the conversation uh, for one of the great American bands of all time, uh, not just the body of work, but uh, always challenging yourself, always doing something new and different and powerful. And, and this new album, Dirt Does Dylan, uh, right there among the best of your work, Jeff. Uh, thank you so much, Rich. I really appreciate it, man. We, uh, you know, we love these tunes and had such a, ch- such a blast recording them. I, I hope folks take to it. Well, I think they will. It's great stuff. I'm also a huge fan of Matraces as well. So. Oh, you may ask. Wish she was here. I'll tell her later, you know. <laughs> well, thanks so uh, much for being with us, Jeff. We appreciate it. We wish you good luck uh, with the music and the tour this summer. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Absolutely, buddy. You take care. That's Jeff Hanna from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band here on Downtown. Our thanks to Jeff. Thanks to Bruce McCullough. Thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown, the podcast brought to you every week by Cross Insurance where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.